You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. All right, well, I'm glad you are here. My name is Alex Cook. I am the group life and missions pastor here at NCC. I'm happy and very humbled to be standing here in front of you this morning. So in early January 2009, Burger King decided to tear apart friendships in the name of free Whoppers. If you don't remember, or if if you've blocked this memory from your brain, or this time period due to emotional trauma, BK ran a promotion called the Whopper Sacrifice in January of 09. The premise was simple. Unfriend 10 friends on Facebook, gain a coupon for a free Whopper in the process. Simple, right? Genius. The only thing worse than being unfriended in the name of a lone fast food cheeseburger is getting notified that one of your former friends ditched your online companionship for one-tenth of a Whopper, which happened every single time. Literally, if you did this back in the day in 2009, I can't believe Facebook allowed this to happen, but the person that you unfriended got a notification on their public wall that you were unfriended for a piece of a Whopper. It's incredible. I love it. The campaign was so successful that after the first week, VK had to take it down because almost 250,000 friends were unfriended and terminated. And Burger King was on the hook for 25,000 free Whoppers. However, BK used the success to even make a last dig at Facebook by officially posting this statement. Facebook has shut down Whopper sacrifice after your love for the Whopper sandwich proved to be stronger than 233,906 friendships. Genius. Quick poll real quick before we get started. This is, this is actually a pretty serious poll. Raise your hand if I say your favorite fast food burger chain, all right? Just be honest. No shame in this. All right. Number one, McDonald's. Raise your hand if McDonald's is your favorite fast food burger. Dave Shore is the only person in North Canton. All right, Dave. There's a little respect loss, but it's okay. How about this? A step up, Wendy's. Wendy's? Yeah, lots of people love Wendy's. All right, Wendy's. Burger King? Anybody like the the king? Yeah, flame broiled. How could you beat flame broiled? All right. Rallies. Anybody like rallies? Yes, thank you. Rallies is super underrated. I love Big Buford. Mmm, so good. What about this for you exotic people? In-N-Out Burger? Anybody like In-N-Out Burger? A couple, yeah? All right. If you know, you know. But unfortunately, you're all wrong. Because the correct answer to this question is a galley boy from Swenson's. Raise your hand if you guys like, yeah, I knew it. I knew it. Everyone forgot until I mentioned Swenson's. They're like, oh, yeah, duh. Galley boy, come on. Swenson's may have paid me for this, by the way. I hope so, at least. But seriously, seriously though, is this what friendship has become in the 21st century? 
Are we willing to publicly ostracize our friends to get a free Whopper? Is that something we're, we're able to do in this season? How about this? This is something that just happened to me and my family. My, uh, my young, our middle daughter, Milo, she's three and a half. She just started going to preschool. And she came home one day. It was like the third day of preschool. And she comes to me and, and mommy and says, oh, I have all these new best friends. I have all these, I got a bunch of new best friends and they're coming over. We're going to go swimming. we do all these things. I'm like, we don't have a pool. Like, what are you saying right now? Like, they're coming over. I already invited them, all these things. And we're like, oh, who's your best friends? Like, what's their names? She's like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know who they are. They're just my best friends. It's like, okay, all right. So friendship can kind of look like this in our culture these days. Kind of like we have friends, but like not much depth to these friendships. So we're in our third week of our series called David, Broken and Beloved, taking a closer look at the life of David and the messiness that came with it. Last week, Brandon talked about the famous story of David and Goliath. And he did a great job unpacking the truth behind the story and not just kind of talking about the kitschy phrase, defeat the giants in your life. But he talked about the true story and the true meaning of this. In fact, I had an interesting conversation with someone last week who who said they had heard the story David and Goliath a thousand times growing up. But they literally never knew or understood the true meaning of the story and what God's after. But I want you to know that this is exactly what we aim to do at North Can Chapel. Before every uh, series that we preach, we prayerfully consider and we fast to see what, where God's leading, to see what we should do, the things we should talk about for, for our people here at North Can Chapel. The Word of God is so important to us as a staff and as a church that we, we, we don't want to just give the milk of the Word, but we want to get into the depths. We want to we provide meat. Unpack the depths and the beauty of God's word. Showing that Jesus and God's redemption is the main event here. So I want you to grab your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel 18. It'll be up on the screens. We'll be kind of flying through a lot of text here. So if you want to grab your Bible to read along, go ahead and do that. So picking up where Brandon left off, I'll give you guys a couple minutes to turn there. A couple seconds, rather. So picking up where Brandon left off, we see something very interesting happen in 1 Samuel 18. So David had just finished whooping Goliath, right? He had just finished this, and now David's sort of in the presence of Saul, uh, King Saul, and King Saul's like, wow, this is the, this is the, the little youth guy. This is the dude who, who defeated Goliath. All right. So... Um, And now he's seeing King Saul, and he's in his presence, really for the first time, post-Goliath. So let's pick it up. 1 Samuel 18, verse 1. It reads this. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belts. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So that Saul sent him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people 
and also in the sight of Saul's servants. We're going to come back to this more in just a second. But something very unique is happening in this moment. David and Jonathan have this moment where they look at each other and they both recognize that God is doing something special in their friendship. It says their souls were knit together in this moment. The text reads similar to Genesis 44:30 when it says Jacob and his sons and his son Benjamin's souls were bound together. It's this familial kind of soul binding. This, this closeness, that's a li- it's more than just a, a normal friendship. It's more than even just a, a good friendship. It's deeper than that. In this moment, David and Jonathan were more brothers than just good friends. Jonathan and David simply had a deep, godly affection for one another. I don't want to have to say this, but I- I'm going to say this just to help with some context Um, scholars all agree that there is zero evidence that this was uh, a romantic kind of relationship at all. There's no language in this text that would hint even to that at all. And I think that's kind of sad that if you Google David and Jonathan and a lot of these things come up, not sad for that reason, but sad because these sort of friendships don't seem to exist in our culture and it it looks so strange that we we can't even say, oh yeah, that's a godly friendship. It's such a strange idea to us that that these people could be knit together in a closeness of friendship. And without much context, we see Jonathan do something absolutely unheard of. He makes a covenant with David out of his love, and then he strips himself of his robe and gave it to David, as well as his armor, sword, bow, and belt. This was Jonathan's royal robe. Jonathan was symbolically transferring his own royal rights and prerogatives to David in this moment. This little, this little shepherd boy from Bethlehem, a nobody. It was nonetheless an act of abdication, and it was no less a part of the covenant that David would, would take precedence, and Jonathan would rejoice in it. How rare is this that, that Jonathan would humble himself and he would give his royal robe and his rights, all these things that he probably longed for his whole life to be king someday. And he win- willingly does this and it says that he rejoiced in it. He was happy to do this. In our culture, this makes no sense. What a beautiful and strange interaction. So let's continue the story. Saul sees the successes of David and sends him out on special missions where David is very successful, and the people begin to notice David and begin to like him. David's going all out. Um, uh, You see Saul, he's sending him out to to all these battles. He's over the men of war, and David's going out, and, and because God is with him, he has a lot of success. He's doing great things, and people start to like him. They're like, oh, this is David. This is the guy who, who, who took on Goliath and defeated him, and man, this guy is, he's the real deal. People start to like him a lot. And verse 6 says this, As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands 
and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Uh Uh-oh. This is a turning point in the story. And we don't know for sure. The Bible doesn't quite unpack this exactly, but this may have been the moment when King Saul realized, when it dawned on Saul, that David was going to be the one to take the throne from him. It may have been this gut check in Saul where he just realized, this little boy from Bethlehem, this is the one who's going to take the kingdom. The one who was announced by Samuel at Gilgal. This David. And from this moment on, we begin to see the complete unraveling of Saul. Let's stop for just a moment. And let's consider the fact that jealousy totally clouds reality and logic. A jealous heart totally clouds reality and logic. Technically, the women weren't actually even lifting David up in this moment. They, they, they even said Saul first, acknowledging that Saul was king. And, the, and what the, the women were doing, it was, it was typical in Hebrew poetics to compound what they were trying to say. The second statement would just reiterate and intensify the first statement. That's all they were doing. And, and Saul probably knew this. Just like in Psalm 34, 13, it says this, Keep your tongue from evil in your lips from speaking guile. The second statement just reiterates it in a little bit more of an intense way. It was common. But Saul's pride, which is well documented, turns to jealousy, which then turns to fear, which then turns to anger, and it ends in total demise. St. Augustine says this, it'll be on the screen. Anxiety and envy and hatefulness toward others are like smoke from a fire that you can trace back to the idolatrous altars you've built in defiance of God. Let me read that again. Anxiety and envy and hatefulness toward others are like smoke from a fire that you can trace back to the idolatrous altars you've built in defiance of God. That's a, that's a hard pill to swallow, but it's true. So let's pick up back in verse 10. It says this, The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had a spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and he came in before the people. And David had had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. To me, this sort of reminds me, I kind of grew up watching cartoons 
Uh, and it, this, this interaction, I could not help it. I tried to not put this in my mind, but it's like Tom and Jerry almost. Like you see uh, Jerry's kind of like playing a guitar, and then all you see is Tom just throwing weapons at him, and they're like sticking in the wall, and like, and Jerry's kind of juking him. And, and this is actually what it looked like. I mean, he literally took a spear. He had a spear in his hand. David's over here playing like a guitar type thing. And he just hurls the spear at him, and David jukes it, and it's sticking in the wall. Like this is a crazy moment. This isn't just some fabricated story, but this is actually what David was facing in this moment. David had done nothing wrong up to this point. He was just following God and being obedient, and he's getting spears thrown at him from the king. But either way, Saul was no longer trying to hide the fact that he hates David and that he wants him dead. He's no longer trying to hide this fact. And, and we see earlier in the text, it says that uh, Saul removed him from his presence in verse 13 and made him a commander of a thousand. This wasn't because David was awesome. He's like, David, you're amazing, man. I want, I want you to, to be over a thousand. He's thinking to himself, oh, if I put him in, front, uh, uh, you know, in, in this type of situation, he's probably going to get killed in battle. So the motives behind what Saul's doing here aren't pure. Does that ring a bell in our own lives sometimes? Our motives aren't quite what they might seem on the outside. So after this exchange, Saul begins to try to hatch a plan to get David killed so that he doesn't have to do the dirty work. He's like, all right, I probably shouldn't have thrown that spear at David. Uh, people are going to start uh, seeing that I'm trying to kill David, and they love David, and, and this is not great for me. So I'm going to try to hatch a plan. So in verse 17, uh, Saul tries to get David to marry his daughter, Merib, in exchange for fighting in war, he says, hey, David, you can be my son-in-law. How awesome is that? You can be my son-in-law. All you have to do to get my daughter and to marry her is to go fight in war. Once you come back, man, you're my son-in-law. Again, it's just clear from our perspective that what Saul's trying to do is get David killed. He's like, yeah, marry my daughter, but go first and do a lot of fighting in war. And hopefully get killed. That's what he's doing in this moment. But this plan fails because David is an honorable man and he's got true humility. And he kind of stalls this. He's like, oh, not me. So I'm just a, I'm a nobody from Bethlehem. Not me. I can't possibly do this. And he stalls just enough where uh, Saul's daughter is then pledged to another man. So Saul, he fails on this first mission. But all of a sudden, it's found out that Saul's other daughter, Michael, loves David and wants to marry him. And Saul's like, perfect. My daughter, she even loves him. This is perfect. This is going to be easy. And he, he says, hey, David, uh, Michael, my daughter, loves you and wants to marry you. You can marry her and be my son-in-law. This is going to be a great. All you have to do, uh, I won't even make you pay like an actual monetary uh, price to marry her. All you have to do is bring me back 100 foreskins of Philistine enemies. That's super weird, I know, in our culture, that's very strange. I'm not even going to try to, yeah, it's weird. All right. <laughs> but what does David do? David brings back 200. There's almost like this moment where he's like, man, I just want to, I want to be for you, okay? I want to, I want to be godly. I want to do what, you're, what, what I'm supposed to do. And again, this was to get David to die. He's saying, yeah, go, go do this crazy thing. Hopefully you don't die, David. Saul's plan fails again. 
So this time in the story, Saul starts to get a little bit more bold. He's getting mad because all his plans are starting to fail. And he's like, I don't know what to do. So this time he gets a little bit more bold. And he even tells his servants and he tells Jonathan, he says this, that they should just kill David. He's like, we should just kill David. And people were probably looking at him like, what? Like, why would you want to kill David? He's kind of awesome, and he's doing all this stuff for you. Like, you should love David. This is crazy. So 1 Samuel 19 says this. This is sort of the interaction that Jonathan has with his dad, Saul, in this moment. And Saul spoke to Jonathan and his sons and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in, secret, stay in a secret place and hide yourself, and I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine. That's Goliath. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swore, As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. So Jonathan's like, all right, I'm just going to remind my dad, like, David's a good guy, and like, hey, he should be back in your presence. You should actually be happy that David's in your kingdom right now, because he literally took care of Goliath, and, and you wouldn't, and nobody else would, and like, this is a good thing, Dad. You should be happy. So David comes back. I'm sure he's like, all right, is, there any, is Saul holding a spear again? Hopefully not. But he's coming back, and he starts to play a little jazz tune when, when Saul again notices David, and, and he tries to spear him again right off the bat. He's like, I didn't even finish my first song, and you're trying to spear me again? So once again, David jukes him, and he runs right back to his house. Now, David's a smart guy, but like, where, where's the worst place you can run if you know someone's trying to kill you? He runs right back to his house, and Saul's like, I wonder where he went. Probably right back to his house. Not the smartest place. But then Saul starts to just get brash, and he's like, I, we just got to concoct a plan. And he's like, I, I'm just, we're just going to do this right now. So he just sends assassins right to David's house, obviously. Like, that's the, the no-brainer thing. He sends these assassins to David's house to kill him in his sleep, right? It makes sense. It's easy. David's going to be napping. We're going to kill him. It's done. But David's wife, a.k.a. Saul's daughter, Michael, helps David escape and cover for him. Literally, she actually covers for him. She takes a statue. She puts some goat hair on it and puts some clothes and tucks it in bed right beside her or whatever. And Saul's boys get duped again. And David flees. The story is actually kind of funny. Instead of just, like, waking up David and, like, killing him right there, they, like, bring his bed. It's really funny, and it's a, it's a statue with goat hair on it. No offense, if Casey was trying to cover for me and she put goat hair anywhere near anything, that's kind of offensive, but apparently David didn't have, like, beautiful, slicked-back hair. He had, like, goat hair, so the statues are wrong. So David flees, and he meets up with Jonathan where they exchange these words. 
I want you to follow along with me in 1 Samuel 20, 1 through 17. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing either great or small without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I shall not fail to sit at table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says, Good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they, so, they went, so they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow, or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed towards David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. That's important. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth, and Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by the love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. It's a beautiful interaction between David and Jonathan. So they agree to test Saul's anger in this moment and, and see if he's still trying to pursue David or if he's maybe calmed down. As we see before, there's this new moon festival, so all of Saul's kind of like generals and everybody important sort of having this feast with him, and, and David skips out and he goes into hiding, and, and they, they decide if Saul notices that David's gone, Jonathan would tell Saul to go, uh, or he would, tell, um, he would tell Saul that David went to a family thing, right? He's doing something in Bethlehem, don't worry about it, he's just doing this family thing. If Saul seemed calm, then, then Jonathan would relay the secret code, and he would say, hey, you're good to go, come on back. But if, but if Saul was mad, in which he, he was mad, then Jonathan would tell David via their not-so-good secret code that he's in trouble. Long story short, Saul is very mad. In fact, now he takes his spear and he tries to pin Jonathan, his own son, to the wall. And he actually even cusses at him in this moment. This is pretty crazy. If, if you read it um, for what it is, it's actually pretty aggressive. And he tries to kill him. So Jonathan goes, and he, de he delivers the dreaded secret code to David that he's in grave danger. Before, but before he runs away, 
he and Jonathan have another best friend interaction, which would inevitably be one of the last times they ever met together. It says this in 1 Samuel 20, 41 and 42. David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. A little later, Jonathan comes back out, and he meets David in the secret place, and this would be the last time that they ever talked together as best friends before Jonathan dies. It says this, And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. So what I want to do is I want to sort of unpack this story and give us three, essential, uh, three essentials of what godly friendship looks like. And this story is, is undeniably one of the most beautiful pictures of what godly friendship looks like in the Bible. And it's this closeness that we see that people even say today, like, man, those friends are like Jonathan and David. It's like a, it's like a thing that we say because of this important, beautiful friendship. So I'm going to give you these three threads that lead to godly friendship. Number one is this. Great friendships require great commitment. Great friendships require great commitment. Jonathan was far more committed to this friendship and glorifying God than he was his own self-interest. Jonathan could have been king. He could have been the guy. But instead of looking to himself, which we usually do, he looks to God and he looks beyond his self-interest to be in tune with what God wants him to do. They should have been sworn enemies. Jonathan should have actually been the one trying to kill David because David was, he knew that David could have had the throne. They should have been sworn enemies. But instead, they were committed to being best friends, even in the most fierce and adverse adversity. It would have been very easy for them to hate each other. They did this because they knew their friendship honored God and served his kingdom, not their own self-interest. There's a quick story about two best friends in World War I where they were best friends in their hometown and they enlisted together um, and they, they trained together, they went to war together and they were in the trenches fighting and, and one of the guys, one of the friends went out and he was, he was trying to defend the trench and, and he does this but he gets shot and he's wounded and the other friend's behind the trench and he's like, man, I don't know what to do and his friend's out there, he's like, I gotta go and he gets up and he runs out and he goes and he picks up his friend and he, and, he, and he struggles, and he, he brings him back to the trench, and he lays him down. But at this point, his friend's already dead. And the sergeant, or the, the person in charge, the general guy, comes up to him. He says, why would you do that? Why would you do that? At this point, this man's actually wounded as well. And he's saying, he's dead, and now you're going to die. What was the point of that? He said, the point was, when I went out there, 
the last words my friend said before he died was, I knew you'd come. I knew you'd come. That's commitment. Do you have friendships with that level of commitment? Honestly, do you have friendships with that level of commitment? I think it's disgusting how many friendships are terminated over stupid things. I'm sorry, but I have to say this. I am disgusted at how many friendships are terminated over stupid things. Politics, mass, trivial disagreements. Are you serious? Like, are we serious? This is pathetic. If you're going to be a godly friend, then be a godly friend and stick it out through thick and thin. We cannot be a church or a people who terminate friendships over things that will have not even the slightest impact in eternity. You think we're going to be talking about politics or mass or whatever else in eternity? No, we're not. I can promise you that. So do not terminate a friendship because of silly things here on earth. What's that show in the youth or our kids that it's completely okay to be flaky and abandon our commitments in life? Oh, John made me a little bit mad, so I'm just getting him out of my life. Like, what does that show our kids and our youth? Our culture is looking at us and seeing the hatred and selfishness that we display, and they're mocking us. Do you know why non-Christians in our culture mock us? Because we do these things. And they think, yeah, that's, why would I want to be a part of that? Even the church wounds them, themselves and each other. Are we serious? It's embarrassing and it's dishonoring to Jesus. It's dishonoring to Jesus. David and Jonathan first sought God and everything else was secondary. Let's follow their example. Everything else was secondary. There's nobody in this room that might raise up to be king or queen someday. But even that didn't put a wedge between their friendship because they were chasing after God and the things of God. We need to plant our flag in the ground and find a couple of friends and do life with them no matter what. Second is this. Great friendships require depth. Great friendships require depth. How easy is it just to make surface level friends with like minimal or no depth at all? I mean, take a look at Facebook. I ha it says on Facebook that I have like a thousand friends. I have like three friends. So I don't know who these thousand people are, but they're not truly my friends. It might look cool on social media, but as Madonna once said here, there were whole chunks of my life where I was so lonely and felt I didn't have a friend in the world. Kids, if you don't know who Madonna is, don't Google her, okay? <laughs> but seriously, if, if Madonna feels lonely and that she has no friends, because these friendships were surface level. The question is this, how do you grow in depth with friendships? Is there substance to your friendships? How do we do this? We must speak into each other's lives. We have to be bold and we have to speak into each other's lives. Rebuke when needed and encourage often. When is the last time you had a friend look you in the eye and say, that's a really stupid thing you're about to do? When's the last time one of your friends actually did that? That's a good friend. 
Well, that doesn't happen. It's, hey, man, like, yeah, you can do that. Like, you know, about, you know. We don't want to step on toes. We need friends like that. I got a friend who's sitting in here right now. I was about to make a not good decision in college once at this party. We had just decided we were going to try to, you know, really live for, for Jesus. And, and I, I really wanted to go to this group of friends physically. I wanted to walk over to this group of friends and do something not good. And this friend actually physically got in my way and stopped me. He physically got in my way and wouldn't let me go and rebuked me to my face. Guess what? We're still friends today. And I love him deeper because of that moment. We need friends like this. How else can we do this? Get better at asking questions. We need to get better at asking questions. Instead of, hey, did you watch the Browns game? How about, what have you felt God teaching you these days? That's an easy question. What have you felt God teaching you these days? Or how about this? How can I be praying for you and your family? How can I be praying for you guys? There's no way that you can ask these questions and still stay surface level in your friendships. Inevitably, when you ask these questions, things are going to pour out. And you're going to grow in your friendships. You're going to grow in your relationships. And it's going to go finally beyond that surface level. David and Jonathan did this. It seemed like every single time David and Jonathan were together, they were bringing up God. They were talking about God. They were making covenants to each other. They were always fixed on the main thing. Sure, did they talk about other things? Probably. But the Bible records the important things, and it's always directed at honoring God. Always. This brings us to the last point. Great friendships point to Jesus. Great friendships point to Jesus. Notice how it seems like Jonathan is always bringing up God when he's talking to David. Like we just said that. Notice that, though. Let's, let's kind of look at this. He's, what he's doing is that he's making sure, in these moments, Jonathan is making sure that the substance between he and David's relationship is God. It says that Jonathan strengthened David's hand in God. Jonathan could have just went and encouraged David by telling him that he was going to be king or that he was awesome from slaying Goliath or that he was a great leader so that, man, you're going to get through this. You're a great leader. But what does Jonathan do in this moment? He strengthens his hand in God. Once again, Jonathan knows that the substance of his friendship has to be God. So think about this. This is likely the last time Jonathan and David were going to be together. And Jonathan probably knew that, and David probably did too. One of them were probably going to get killed. So Jonathan had to choose his words carefully. He had to choose what he said next to David carefully because this might be the last thing that he ever got to say to his best friend. So what did he do? He talked about God. He talked about God. Because he knew this is what mattered most in his relationship with David. My encouragement to you is just to be that friend. Be that friend. I don't care if you don't have any other friends doing that for you right now, but guess what? If you be that friend, if you actually take a step in obedience and you be that friend, you would be surprised at what that other friend across from you will start doing as well. They'll start being that friend. 
and your friendship will look more like Jonathan and David. I heard this the other day that you don't even have to be bold, you just have to be obedient. You just have to be obedient to what God is calling you to. I want to close with this. This is the most important thing. So if you're, if you're, if you're here, I want you to, to really listen to this. We would be missing the point of Jonathan and David if we didn't consider what this friendship pointed to. We would be missing the whole point if we didn't consider what this amazing, godly friendship points to. It points to an even greater friendship, and that's Jesus and us. Jonathan gave up his rights to be king. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus. Jonathan comforts David in the wilderness. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which, with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. This is Jesus and us. Jonathan intercedes on David's behalf that his life would be spared. Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he is able, able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus. Jonathan puts his life on the line to protect David from Saul's wrath. And finally, John 15, 13 and 14 say, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do, you, do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. That's Jesus. He calls us friends. Jesus sacrificed his life to call us his friends. Let us learn from this example and be the best godly friends we can be, church. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for this day. God, I thank you that, that you give us this incredible story of Jonathan and David. You give us this picture, this beautiful picture of what friendship is. God, that it's not about us. It's not about what we want. It's not about the things that um, we're striving after, but it's about you. God, it's about you. And if our friendships reflect you, they're going to be deep and they're going to have substance and they're going to matter for eternity. God, please lead us to those relationships and those friendships. We need them. We need them. Jesus, and humble us knowing that you died on the cross, the death that we deserve. You rose again and you call us your friend. Let that humble us that Jesus, you would call us friend. But let that encourage us and stir our hearts to run this race for you, Jesus. We love you so much. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. 
If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.